We turn to uh, Ruth, chapter 3, on page 223 in your Bibles. Uh, Pew Bible there, if you have that. As uh, we take up this chapter, we're going to deal with part of it tonight and part of it next Sunday night. Um, And I want to say about tonight, I'm going to be quoting a lot from different commentators, uh, way more than I usually do. Uh, Hubbard is the name of one, Campbell, uh, Bush, uh, and maybe a few others. But um, the reason I am is because this is, it's an unusual chapter and deals with some delicate subjects, I should say. And I thought it would be good to to underscore the fact that this is this is the scholarly opinion. I'm not making this stuff up because it's pretty wild, okay? Um, and it's the consensus of of excellent scholarship that this is that the writer is doing these things in uh, the way he presents this story, uh, and that provides the basis for the the basic point of this. Uh, study tonight is the word risk, okay? Risk. The kind of risk that uh, Naomi and Ruth take here, and then the question becomes, are we taking risks like this? Uh, Because Ruth obviously risked herself for her love of her mother-in-law, for the good of her mother-in-law, for the future hope of her mother-in-law, she risked everything. Uh, and as Hubbard has said, this is the climactic turning point of the entire story, and it all takes place between sunset and sunrise in a single day. That's pretty cool. Verse 1, chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. 
for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it, be not, uh, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her of all the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Thus the reading of God's word. Let's pray. O Lord, bless us as we delve into this fascinating story. Uh, Lord, enter into... Uh, the, the difficulty of it and the tenseness of it. And Lord, see uh, the love that is displayed in this passage, uh, the love of sacrifice, the love of risking everything for the good of others. Bless us, Lord, that we may walk in the footsteps, not only of Ruth, but especially of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who risked everything for the sake of his people who gave himself lavishly uh, to lose his very life for the sake of his people. Lord, may we walk in his footsteps gladly. May you form Christ in us. May your Holy Spirit manifest himself in us as he is the spirit who enabled Christ to give himself up as the writer of Hebrews says that he offered himself through the eternal spirit by means of that spirit Oh, Lord, may we so offer up ourselves to you and to others by that same glorious spirit that dwells in us. We ask this for the glory of Jesus. Amen. So this is a chapter about rest, and it's also a chapter about covering, which we'll talk, we'll talk about covering next week. But tonight, uh, uh, risk. Now, in verse 1, she expresses, Naomi, her desire for the rest uh, that she wants for, uh, for Ruth. And she's basically wanting her to have a home and to have a husband, right? Uh, she's thinking about Ruth, and as we go on, we'll see that Ruth is thinking about Naomi and the way she approached Boaz She's approaching him in regard to his being a redeemer, not just that she wants a husband, but a redeemer for the whole family. So it's interesting how these women are thinking of each other this whole time, uh, the good for the other one. Um, Naomi wants to remove Ruth's danger and her insecurity and uh, Ruth wants to focus on the future that Naomi can have. Now, he is winnowing barley. This was a joyful time 
in Israel. It's compared, many times salvation is compared to the happiness of the harvest, right? And the harvest is manifested right there in the winnowing of the grain, the joyful climax of the harvest process. And Boaz is likely taking advantage of the evening breeze as the chaff is blown into an area and the grain uh, falls at the feet of those who are winnowing. But also, and this we wouldn't know this except for uh, knowing the culture of the day and the expressions of the day, the threshing floor setting suggests sexual compromise. In the popular mind, it was associated with licentiousness because men would stay out watching the grain and actual prostitutes would come and offer their services. In fact, Hosea chapter 9 verse 1 reads this way, Rejoice not, O Israel, exult not like the peoples, for you have played the prostitute, forsaking your God, you have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. So to use it, you see, as a uh, a metaphor is to show how popular it was in, and how regular that, regularly that thing her, uh, uh, was practiced. So to hear going down to the threshing floor, you'd probably be sitting there and saying, you got to be kidding me. No, uh-uh. You're not telling her to do that. You can't be. Are you out of your mind? What will people think? What's this going to look like? The writer's not unaware of this, and he's telling the story exactly the way it happened, and he's not hiding that fact, and, he's, and Naomi knows about this as well. She knows that this could be misinterpreted. She knows this is a risky move, but she is making this move. And the idea the writer is conveying to us that not his dismay that she did this, not his disagreement with what she did. Rather, this is the way God worked his plan out through her initiative. Now, we might wonder, okay, well, why didn't Boaz act before now? Uh, she had, you know, gleaned the fields. She had been with uh, the women for weeks and he knew that she was a relative. He knew she belonged to Naomi. He knew and praised her that she had come out of Moab and attached herself to Naomi. And she had come under the wings of Yahweh in Israel. He recognized all of this. And the question might be, well, why hadn't you made your move, dude, before now? You know, you know that she needs protection. You know the situation with the family and you're a redeemer, you know. What's holding you back? But the fact is, he could have been, likely was an older man, perhaps as old as Naomi himself. And so he would naturally have a hesitancy of saying, I'm going to make her marry an older guy. Good night. Who would want that, you know? And plus, there are other redeemers, not just the one he mentions, but there may have been others in the family and it could be that each of them is waiting for the other one to move. Nobody's making the move uh, that maybe they should have talked about it or something should have been done. But 
it, it was not happening. And so uh, this is Naomi's bold move to, to break the impasse. You know, nothing's happening here. I'm going to make something happen here. We're going to see what, what goes on. And, of course, she knows that Ruth's reputation is excellent. And she knows that Boaz is an honorable man. She doesn't really think anything's going to happen on the threshing floor. But the innuendos are there. Uh, and we'll see a few, some more here in, in a minute. Um, some people, though, even some commentators, think that she endangered Ruth and that she acted hastily without faith. But I believe she acted in faith and that God was using her to carry out uh, his, his purposes here. Um, and the, the text does, though, maybe purposely raise this question, was this wise or not? You know, what's going to happen here? Because you don't know his reaction. Is he going to be angry? Is he going to be shocked? What, what's he going to do? And, but she did have faith in his fundamental integrity because she said, you, you lie there, you lie at his feet, and when he finds out you're there, he'll tell you what to do. He, he's going to handle the situation. Well, as we will see, uh, it was Ruth that handled the situation uh, in what she said. Um, but the, the, the way it's presented, where in chapter uh, 12, uh, that the Boaz said to Ruth, the Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. A key verse in this whole, whole uh, book verse 12 of chapter 2, uh, that this can be seen as a part of Yahweh's repayment, his reward, his grace to her uh, for what she has come to do. And so in that way, theologically, you'd say that Yahweh is acting in Naomi's act. And what Naomi does constitutes at the same time what God is doing. Her act executes God's plan. And this seems to be the writer's view of it, uh, that look what God did, look what wild plan God used to bring about his will, the future birth of David and the future birth of Jesus Christ, I remind you, right? So this is, this is an amazing passage. Now, in saying to wash and anoint yourself, it reminds us of when David, uh, after the death of his child in 2 Samuel 12, washed himself and applied uh, perfumed oil, uh, and he put on his cloak, as it says here, the same word, cloak, to go to the temple to worship and came home to eat and drink and break his fast of grieving. And so this may also explain why Boaz had not acted because he wasn't sure if she was over her grieving of losing her husband. But this was a way for her to say, uh, a dramatic way, of course, my mourning is over, I'm available for marriage if the opportunity should come my way, and of course, you're the man I hope will come my way, you know, you're the man I hope to have. <clears throat> but that, this can help explain a little bit what's going on here and what she's declaring to him uh, in, this, in this way. And of course, waiting till he's uh, had something to eat, had some good drink, uh, he's contentment, he's 
he, he, he's contented, uh, feels good. Uh, that's just smart, right? That's just smart. Get him in a good mood. Let's see what happens then. And I like what Hubbard says, overriding sense of divine providence in this, that, that's what's here in this story. It's the overriding sense of divine providence so that one can say God works in just that kind of ingenuity, which would encourage us, right? It's, it's good to be smart. It's good to think, figure out stuff. God uses things like that. Uh, but in verse four, uh, we, we see some further sexual innuendo. Um, it's really a sexually charged atmosphere that, that would hold the reader's attention and purposely make uh, the reader wonder, will they continue to live out true hesed, a true uh, faithful love to one another in this situation? Because even the terms, when he lies down, observe that place, uncover his feet. Uh, it's ambiguous, it's suggestive. And remember in Leviticus 18 and 20, the law of God prevents, uh, forbids sexual intimacy and marriage to various relatives. And it goes through and over and over describes this 24 times. It says, do not, do not, do not. How does it describe it? Do not uncover the garment. Do not uncover your uh, nakedness. And so now that's not what happens here, but it suggests that you see the uncovering of the feet. It would bring to mind this kind of uh, terminology and the activity of uncovering is forbidden. And so it would give this an immoral ring in the Israelites ears. Um, and so the language itself is charged, you might say. Uh, even the mention of feet is provocative and suggestive. Uh, so even the term lying down, all of this raises questions as to what's going to happen. It's also interesting that uh, he is described uh, as the man and she as a wo the, the woman. Uh, she went down to her, uh, when Boaz had eaten uh, at midnight, verse 8, the man was startled. And then later he tells his servant, the woman. And later he's mentioned as the man. And this kind of reinforces the scene's darkness by obscuring, as one writer says, obscuring the identities of the characters. It hints that the scene is about the relationship between a man and woman. It's kind of dark and, and secret, mis mysterious and private. They're not quite recognizable in a, in, and there's this, this darkness. She leaves before daybreak. All of this about it. And yet in the midst of it, they are absolutely pure, of course. There's no doubt that they didn't engage in anything at all. But the vocabulary, uh, as Bernstein writes, quoted in, in Bush's commentary, the vocabulary of the scene indicates it might have been. The atmosphere was charged. This ambivalence, this might have been. Uh, the suggestive language helps us understand how difficult this was for them, that there was real awkwardness involved in this situation. 
Now, lying at his feet symbolized basically her proposal, her readiness to be married, not an immoral readiness, but a readiness to enter into the marriage covenant. And of course, the storyteller means us to be wondering what's going to happen, how's he going to react, uh, what's going to be the result of this. So, he will tell you what to do, she says. But we see what really happened. When she asked, who are you? It's Ruth who tells Boaz what to do, basically. Which is an astounding thing. She's justified in what she asks according to the basic principles of righteousness in Israel. Spread your wings over me. Spread your garment, your covering, literally, the corner of your garment. What it represents is that you are taking me in and, and sheltering me. Uh, the gesture of a man covering a woman with his garment was symbolic. And in Near Eastern custom, it signified a new relationship. Uh, and it was the declaration of a husband to provide for the sustenance of a future wife. And Boaz seemed to accept it, no questions asked. That's how obviously appropriate it was in the end that she throw this out there when he asked, who are you? She put the whole request before him. And rather than him say, who in the world are you here asking me that their calculations were pretty dead on weren't they that he will see his obligation it will break through his hesitancy his questions of whether he should or should not do this uh, and actually as some have pointed out they were really making him an offer better than anyone he could ever get with this young woman so there's that element about it as well uh, that this young woman was coming asking him to marry her. So uh, the commentator Block says, now she turns around and lectures Boaz on his ab obligations to her. The reader stands back in awe wondering what has possessed her. That's, that's really what would happen if we were reading this uh, as original Israelites reading this story. We'd just be like, our mouths would be hanging open. We, we'd be in shock that she was doing these things. And Block points out, here's a servant demanding that the boss marry her. This is a Moabite making the demand of an Israelite, a woman making the demand of a man, a poor person making the demand of a rich man. Was she naive? Was she just that passionate for her mother-in-law? Was it the hidden hand of God acting through her? Maybe all of it. So basically she's saying, your redeemer responsibility calls for you to marry me. And he never questions it. His response shows that he just took it for granted. You're right. This is it. Maybe he was grateful. Maybe he was overjoyed. I 
can't believe she wants me. She wants to be with me. Uh, and it overcame immediately his he hesitancy. <clears throat> the Redeemer would regain property for the relative, or he might uh, bring people out of servitude when they had to go into servitude because of debts. Uh, he even would avenge those who've been murdered. Um, he takes responsibility for those that are unfortunate in the family, and he stands as their supporter, their advocate. He takes up justice for them. And so that's what she appealed to him for, to be her redeemer. He carries out her, uh, Naomi's uh, commands, her instructions exactly to the T. And even though it suggested a delicate sexuality and great risk, she obeyed her mother and she did it for her mother, that her mother might have a family and a heritage. Um, that's why she approached him on the basis of not just would you marry me, but would you be my and Naomi's redeemer? Because this would naturally extend that Naomi would be taken in with Ruth being taken in. So she, as we said earlier, uh, Naomi's acting for Ruth's good, now Ruth is acting uh, for her good. But how strange, sleeping together, perhaps alone, isolated threshing floor. And he said the audience probably squirmed with fear and excitement that this thing is happening. What's going to go on? The, she executed the plan. The decisive moment is at hand. He perhaps is shivering. He wakes up, there she is, and then we have the wonderful answer that we're going to consider next week of what he said. You've made this last kindness greater than the first. You've not gone for rich, uh, uh, for money or love, but you've come to this old man uh, for the good of your family. You've shown that you are indeed a woman of great kindness and love. Uh, and you continue to demonstrate it in, in more and more ways. Um, so perhaps Naomi looked to this time of that somewhere along the way he would be disturbed. Uh, she couldn't guarantee what his reactions would be, but that was the risk she took. And then especially it's the risk that uh, Ruth took herself. Imagine being there him saying this to her and her just challenging him, you must be my redeemer, uh, not knowing what would happen at, at that. But next week we're going to talk about his answer of covering. But I want to just bring a final few minutes uh, to our attention this idea of risk. Now, she risked everything when she left Moab and her great declaration in chapter one uh, to serve God in particular, but to attach herself in love to her mother-in-law. And when she went to the threshing floor, she again risked everything. And the question comes that since she is risking herself for, we would say the glory of Yahweh, because she's left her, her, her country to serve this Yahweh and do his will. And she 
feels like she is accomplishing his will by helping Naomi and, and giving herself to what Naomi has told her to do. So she is loving God and loving her uh, mother-in-law. So we must ask this question, how are we risking ourselves to love our neighbors? How are we risking ourselves to care for those around them? Starting with real neighbors, to show hospitality to them, to meet them or learn their names, find out about their families, about their problems, to risk ourselves to share the gospel, to minister to the poor and the dispossessed, to refugees from other nations that may be here in Hattiesburg. Who are the people in the world who haven't heard the gospel? How are we risking ourselves for them? Daguid, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, asked this question, who are the people that we can reach for Christ if only we will take a personal risk with the gospel? So how are you and I, how are we risking ourselves for the good of people? But I don't want to just throw it out as this challenge, hey, what are you doing, you know, but to hold forth to you as well the salvation that extends to us in Christ Ruth was saved from idolatry and paganism. That's what happened when uh, the family moved there and she was brought into this family. And obviously Naomi's faith was part of the reason that she was converted to, uh, to the God of Yahweh, I mean, the, to Yahweh. And she then had the grace of God working in her life. Now, if the grace of God can claim a Moabite pagan so that she is now spending herself lavishly and risking everything for the good of her family, for the good of Naomi, for the glory of God, then he can work in any girl or boy or man or woman in Hattiesburg, right? He can work in our lives. He can change us. You remember her great confession, it is out of joy in him that we will risk for him. It's not just, okay, pull up your bootstraps and get out there and risk yourself. It happens out of our joy in him, out of our worship and our gladness in him. It's out of awe. As I said earlier, there's forgiveness with you that we that you may be feared, that you may become our consuming desire and, a, and attention and so that we're willing to risk anything for your glory, anything to make known the joy that we have in Christ Jesus. And that's why Paul, the great evangelist to all the Gentiles, as you know, could say in this summarizing statement in 2 Corinthians 5, it is the love of Christ that governs us, right? It is the knowledge of that love. It is, it is the reality of that love, maybe connecting that with our text this morning, that we know something and have experienced something, we're tasting something of the wideness and greatness and depth and height of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's what has our heart. So, in many ways, though, you know, Paul thought about it, but he just risked his life over and over and over again 
went through sufferings when he describes them in 2 Corinthians that you just think, how can anybody go through all that? But as Piper has pointed out many times, he said, you know, the people who are suffering the most for Christ are the ones who kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, what else would I do? Of course I suffer for Christ. I would have it no other way. And he is worth it. He is worth it. What he has done for me, how he has loved me and cared for me, I'm overwhelmed. I'm in awe of his love. So perhaps this could be another application of this morning's prayer. Lord, may we know the height and depth and length and width of the love of Christ that we may then risk everything for you. In the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, it was convened, as many of you know, by the Emperor Constantine. It was the first general council of the whole church. It involved the church from the whole empire. Counting the priests and deacons who came with the hundreds of bishops, there were like 1,500 men in attendance. And one of the remarkable features is that only in the 10 or 20 years preceding Nicaea was Christianity allowed to exist in the empire. Before that, 10 or 20 years, it was not allowed to exist. And persecution was rampant. So many of the bishops attending Nicaea were what they call confessors. They had confessed Christ and suffered for it. You know the kind of thing, bringing you out and saying, do you or do you not believe in Jesus Christ? Yes, I do. And then it fell upon them. Therefore, many of the bishops attending had suffered. Some were missing eyes. Some were missing limbs. Some were crippled. They carried the marks of their love to Christ in their own bodies. And it was because they were willing to lose their lives and because many, many others did lose their lives, that the gospel has even come to us, right? And so Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses his life. So Jesus challenges us to bear fruit with our lives by dying to ourselves. I love Peanuts, uh, one particular comic, kids are playing baseball. Charlie Brown's on the mound, you know, he always is pitching. And he yells to Lucy, you know, Lucy plays in the outfield. And he says, that's a beautiful new glove you have, Lucy. And she says, thank you. How long do you think a glove like this will last? And the next frame shows Lucy standing like this with her glove to catch a ball and it lands behind her. <laughs> Which every ball that comes to Lucy, she doesn't even come close to catching. So in the last frame, in answer to Lucy's question about how long her glove will last, Charlie Brown says, about a hundred years. Because <laughs> right? it's never going to be used. Because you will never catch a baseball in that glove, right? Well... You get the point. We must be used for God, brothers and sisters. We must be worn out for Jesus and lose everything 
if he calls us to do that. We are to be spent for God. And it brings to mind, I have to at least read it to you. We've touched on it before since I've been here, but 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be made known. Let's pray. Oh Lord, give us grace to so know your love, to be so overwhelmed and gripped by your love, joyful over your love, that we gladly would give ourselves away to others, that we gladly will sacrifice, that Lord, we will gladly risk whatever you call us to risk for the sake of Christ and for the sake of those who do not know Christ, for the sake of those who do know Christ and we're called to serve them in various ways. Oh Lord, give us grace that we will manifest the great love of God who gave himself for us on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.